Merry Christmas. It's come. <laughs> Even if you're not ready, it's here. Um, this is our third week in Luke's Gospel. The title for this Christmas series has been what? Witness and Worship. The point that we've tried to make is that the scriptures bear witness to Christ so that we may respond in worship. And for those who know Jesus, we're to go out and we're to do what? We're to bear witness to Christ before the world so that the lost may be saved and worship. Every year at Christmas, uh, we watch a few Christmas movies. One of my favorites is the classic Charlie Brown Christmas movie, and we watched it last night with popcorn. You know, you got to love Charlie Brown. You feel sorry for him as well. Sometimes he just can't figure out life, how things work. So in this particular movie, he's trying to ascertain what is the true meaning of Christmas. He realizes it's not about consumerism. It's not about presents. There's something greater. It's not even about finding the perfect Christmas tree, right? And at the end of this movie, kind of that climactic moment, Linus comes up on stage and he quotes from memory Luke 2, 8-21. And my biggest takeaway from that whole movie is that Linus must have been a part of Awana. He doesn't look at a Bible. He just quotes it from memory. He's probably seven years old. It's incredible. And we have some kids that can do that. That's my text. I'm excited. I'm thankful. The title, and I think you'll see why this is fitting, is Heavenly Worship. Heavenly Worship. Here's the big idea. Those who receive the gift of heaven respond like heaven. Amen? Those who receive the gift that comes down from heaven, respond like heaven. Um, Many years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in California. And one of the keynote speakers was Al Mohler. Al Mohler is a theologian. He's also the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But Mohler has had this ongoing podcast, I think for 13 years now, called The Briefing. And he travels all over the world, but it doesn't matter if he's traveling he still records the briefing. In the briefing, what it is, I'd encourage you to check it out. It's a daily podcast that looks at all the events that are happening in our world, right? Uh, things that, you know, political events, uh, things that have to do with financials. Um, what are some other examples? The economy, um, even small events, as well as large events. But what I like about the, the briefing is that he shows you how do we make sense of what happens in our world from a biblical point of view? How does the Word guide us and direct us and help us to understand what's happening in the world? Because, again, we want to respond biblically. So I've been listening to this for 10 years. I'm at this conference. He's one of the keynote speakers. I'm with a friend of mine who's actually close friends with Al Mohler. And this friend of mine is a historian, and he collects rare Bibles. And he had three that he was giving to Al as a gift. And he said, hey, I'm going to give these Bibles to Dr. Moeller, would you like to go hang out with him? Would I ever? I would love to. Yeah, I mean, I've, re- I've read his books. You know, he's a hero of mine. And so we go to the hotel where Dr. Moeller's staying, and we go up to his room, and in the corner, there's a desk. And on the desk, there's a stack of newspapers, there's handwritten notes, there's a microphone, and I realize that's where he's recording the briefing this week. I got a behind-the-scenes look. It was a privilege. And, and maybe you're like, Okay, that doesn't really resonate with me. What about your favorite sports team, okay? 
and they're playing their rival, and you get to be in the locker room before the game, during halftime, to see what goes on. I mean, wouldn't you feel privileged to have that kind of behind-the-scenes look? You've heard of young athletes that get maybe invited to a training camp, and they haven't made it yet, but they get to to rub shoulders with guys who have. We say, wow, they're getting a behind-the-scenes look. In our passage, and I hope you heard it, heaven is opened up. Literally, heaven is opened up to a group of shepherds, and they witness heaven's response to the coming of Jesus. What a privilege. They get to see behind the scenes. And not only that, but what stands out in our passage is they emulate, they imitate heaven's response. They engage, the shepherds engage in heavenly worship. Now, I could argue, and I think I should, and I hope you would agree with me, that there's a very real sense in which we, as believers, as the church, are meant to reflect the heavenly realm. Let me, I came across this a few weeks back, and I thought it was really helpful. So Jesus teaches us, I'm going to highlight four or five things here. Again, here's, here's the point. Here's my thesis statement here. There's a very real sense in which the church, what we do, how we live, is meant to reflect what's happening in heaven. And I hope all of God's people would say, amen, I agree, yes. So let's start with Jesus and his teaching on prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray with a view toward heaven. That's Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're to pray with a view toward heaven. Paul charges us as Christians to live as citizens of heaven. That's Philippians 1.27 and Philippians 3.20. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, only live as citizens. Citizens of what? of heaven, in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians, but our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. And from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, lastly here, Paul commands us to set our minds on heaven. That's Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then in Luke 2, our passage, we see that we are to worship in a heavenly manner. So the church gathered is to be a preview of heaven, where the Lord perfectly rules as king. How we pray, how we live, how we think, and how we praise is all to resemble heaven. And this morning, we'll be looking at heavenly worship. You know, our passage, oh, this is brilliant. Our passage is framed around glory. It begins on a note of glory, and it ends on a note of glory. So our passage is framed by glory. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them in the glory. Everybody say glory. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So our passage kicks off with God's glory appearing, manifesting itself before these shepherds. And then, how does our passage end? Verse 20, and the shepherds returned. They've beheld the glory of God. And what are they found doing after they behold God's glory in the Christ child? And the shepherds returned 
glorifying. There's the verb, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the Lord reveals his glory, and the shepherds respond by glorifying God. Let me define these words, glory and glorify. The word for glory, the Greek word is doxa. Everybody say doxa. Like put up your doxa, but maybe that doesn't help. But doxa. It refers to God's manifestation of his awesome character, his greatness, his splendor, his fame, his honor. Now, if we did a study on God's glory, and I've done a lot of work on this term, I have. If we did a study on God's glory in the Bible, we would see, now don't forget this, that his glory most often refers, and I'm talking Old Testament and New, okay? His glory most often refers to, you ready? The revelation of his power. Everybody say power. There's three P words here that'll be helpful for remembering. The manifestation or the revelation of his power through the manifestation of his presence as he both declares and acts on promises made. One more time. God's glory refers to the revelation of his power through the manifestation of his presence as he both declares and acts upon promises made. So when you think God's glory, think power, presence, and promises. And what we're going to see in the very middle of our passage is the good news pronouncement of the promised Savior King who will bring peace for all peoples. Finally, finally, through Jesus, God's long-awaited rescue mission of calling to himself a worldwide people is coming true. And what is the appropriate response to God's faithfulness and glorious revelation of himself? When God reveals his glory, how should we respond? We should glorify him, we should worship. Now the verb to glorify is doxadzo. It means to praise to honor, to extol. The Lord reveals his greatness so that we might praise him. That is a summary of our passage. The Lord reveals his greatness so that we might praise him. He reveals his glory, and the appropriate response is to glorify him. I see two things in our passage, two major points from the text. Number one, Christ is witnessed. What is the witness or testimony surrounding Jesus? What is revealed about Jesus in our passage? Now, this is helpful for us as we witness for Jesus. We're called to witness for Christ, amen? So what does the text show us about Jesus? What do we need to share about Jesus with the lost? So again, this is going to be helpful for us as we witness for Christ. Verse 11, listen, verse 11. For unto you is born this day... In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is Savior, He is Christ, He is He's Lord. Now, when we talk about Jesus, it's essential that we emphasize these three things. Namely, that He is Savior, He's Christ, and He's Lord. <clears throat> Did you know this is the only place in the New Testament where we have the combination of these three titles applied to Jesus. It's the only place in the whole Bible where we see Savior, Christ, and Lord in the same verse ascribed to who? 
Ascribe to Jesus. I want to take these one at a time. First, he is Savior. Who is thankful today that Jesus is Savior? <laughs> He's Savior. What does that mean? The Greek word for Savior, soter, means Savior, one who saves. But it refers to one who saves from great enemies, right? One who rescues or delivers from enemies. Jesus came to rescue God's people from sin, Satan, and what else? Death. Death. He's the Savior who came to rescue God's people from sin, Satan, and death. Next, we see that Jesus is the Christ. So when we share Jesus with the lost, we need to emphasize that he is Savior. He came to save his people from sin, Satan, and death, but he's also the Christ. Christ means Messiah or anointed one and was a title for the promised king to come from whose line? The line of David, the one whose kingdom would know no end and whose rule meant the end of God's enemies. And then lastly, this is the most surprising title by far. Because again, the Jews during the time of Jesus expected the king. He would be the anointed one, the Christ from the line of David. But then this third title, what is it? He's Lord. This would have been surprising. Not only was Jesus the promised king come to rescue God's people, but he was in fact God. The Lord himself had come to rescue his people as promised. Amen? You know, this is helpful, and I can think of, just off the top of my head, probably three or four places in Isaiah where you have, even Ezekiel as well, where you have two parallel promises that God is going to come and rescue his people and that he's going to send the Messiah. The question is, which is it? Yes. Because these two promises, God coming and the Messiah coming, intersect in who? Who is God? Who is king? It's Jesus. He fulfills both promises. Amen? Is that helpful? It should be. Now, this was dangerous language. Why? To refer to Jesus at this time, in this place, as Savior, King, and Lord. <clears throat> we have early inscriptions from this place, from this time, declaring Caesar, the Roman emperor, to be the Savior and Lord of Rome. But the angels, the angels from on high declare the truth. Jesus is the true Savior. He's the true Lord. He's the true king, not Caesar. And only Jesus can bring true and lasting salvation. This was good news indeed. And what we see in verse 10 is that this good news is for all the people. This language recalls God's promise to Abram in Genesis 12.3. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth, not some, but all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is how the Bible ends in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The Lord's plan, the Lord's plan has always been to rescue a people from all the nations for himself. So what is the message of Christmas so far according to our passage? A Savior has come who is King and Lord, and he's come to rescue a people from all the nations. That's good news. Now, if we, if we pause there, if we think, okay, so 
He's come to rescue a people from all the nations. If God's heart is for the nations, then our heart should be for the for the nations. Christmas demands. Did you know that Christmas makes demands? Christmas demands a missional focus from God's people, for Christmas is the great declaration of our God of mission. Now, I want to talk about the surprise of Christmas. Let's talk about the surprise of Christmas. And this is seen at two levels. How many? Two levels. First, the situation surrounding the birth of the promised king. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. A manger. The promised king isn't born in a palace surrounding pomp and circumstance, but in a lowly manger in the countryside. Such humble beginnings. And these humble beginnings point us to his humble mission, the laying down of his life for sinners. Amen? Recall Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humble king, who was found lying in a manger, would later lay down his life on the cross for sinners. What a humble king we serve. And second, we have the audience of shepherds. I've spent time with shepherds. Have you? I lived among shepherds in Africa. They didn't smell good. They were strange. They were enigmatic. I mean, they didn't say much. I was in a a mountainous region in Cameroon, and they would just wander and take care of their sheep. People didn't talk to them. I tried to engage them. Same was true back then in this place, in this time. Who were these men? Again, that, that God would announce the good news to such an unlikely group is surprising. Shepherds. Who were these guys? As one scholar notes, Most people of status throughout the empire viewed shepherds as lowly and sometimes as rough, unclean, or even dangerous. These men were looked down upon. In their culture, they weren't viewed as anyone special. In fact, they were avoided. And yet, it was to such as these that the Lord made himself known. And this fits with verse 10. What do we see in verse 10? What do we see in verse 10? He came to save some people. He came to save all the people. Now, that's not universalism. Not everyone is going to be saved, but God's heart has always been to rescue a people from all the nations for himself. The good news of Christmas wasn't solely for the wealthy, the powerful, and important, but for the least of these, the outcast, the broken, and especially the sinful. The humble birth of our humble king announced to a most humble group indeed. Now, what does this teach us? Again, the humble birth of our humble king announced to the most humble group indeed. What does that teach us? The kingdom of God is characterized by humility. Therefore, those who wish to enter it must respond with what? Humility. Recall Matthew 5, 3 and 5. These are from the Beatitudes of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Humility is at the heart of repentance. The gospel demands humility because the gospel is clothed in humility. But the gospel demands humility. When we repent of sin, we are acknowledging what? We are not king. But who is? Jesus is. That's a humble thing to do, right? I mean, to say, I'm not king. I can't rule my life. If I rule my life, it results in hell, eternal separation. It's a mess. So i got to step off the throne <laughs> and declare another to be king. We are stepping off the throne and placing Jesus over the throne of our hearts. This is what the gospel demands of us. And finally, we have the mention of peace. What was the message of the heavenly host? Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. One more time, glory to God in the highest. There's that glory word again. And on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Jesus came to meet our greatest need, which is what? What do we need? We need, starts with pa, ends with is. We need peace, peace with God. We need peace with God. That is our greatest need. That is what sin prevents. Because of sin, we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. Therefore, we need to be at peace with God. And that Greek word for peace, irene, I love it, so pretty, irene. It refers to relational harmony with God. Relational harmony between sinful humans and a holy, righteous, and just God. This is what Jesus came to bring in this, through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection. Again, Christ is witnessed in our text. What is revealed about Jesus in Luke 2, 8 to 21? He is Savior. He is King. He is Lord. Come to bring salvation to the nations, and namely peace between a holy God and sinful humanity. Are you witnessing for Jesus today? Are you? How are you testifying to Jesus, to others? What needs to be shared? What are the implications of the several things mentioned in our passage? Let's look at these quickly. What's the implication of this grandiose truth that Jesus is Savior? If I say Jesus is Savior, that means we need to be what? We need to be saved, right? So the implication of that great truth that Jesus is Savior is we need saving. We're a sinful mess. Next, Jesus is king. As the Christ, only he can defeat and deal with our enemies. That's the implication. He's king. He's the promised Messiah. Come to deal with our great enemies, separating us from God. If he's the king, then that means he can deal with those enemies. Oh, third, he's Lord. Jesus is Lord. Because he is Lord, divine, God, we must submit to him and come under his word. He is the sovereign, all-powerful Lord. He is God. Number four, Jesus' coming is for all the people. What's the implication of that? If, if Jesus' coming is for all the people, then what should we do? We should tell all the people. <laughs> we need to think about how we can get the word out, how we can spread this good news globally, both near and far. And then finally, Jesus came to bring peace, which means what? What's the implication of that? If he came to bring peace, what is naturally missing in our lives? 
peace. (laughs) We are naturally not at peace with God. We are naturally, because of sin, at enmity with God. We need to be made right with God, but how? How? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus for salvation because he is Savior. And follow him and come under his word because he is King and Lord. Come to Jesus for peace with God. You want peace with God today? Come to Jesus. Trust in him. Get off the throne. Acknowledge that you're not king. He is king. Trust in King Jesus. So what's the appropriate response to all this good news? What do we do with it, friends? Number two, God is worshipped. We worship him. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So our passage ends with what? God's glory is revealed. Christ is declared to be Savior, King, and Lord. And how did the shepherds respond? They, they glorify, they praise, they worship. So what does our passage teach us about worship? Who thinks that it's important to know how we should worship as Christians? You can raise your hand. I'm, I'm curious. I would say that we were made to worship because the Bible teaches that. So we should know. We should want to know at least what should our worship entail? Well, I want to give you the ABCs of worship. That's my Christmas present to you, church. I want to give you the ABCs of worship according to our text. The ABCs of worship. A, it is to be joy-filled. Our worship is to be joy-filled. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great what? Great joy that will be for all the people. Our praise, our worship, is to be joyful because of the object of our praise and what he accomplished for us. Who is the object of our praise? Jesus. What did he accomplish for us as Savior, King, and Lord? What did he come to provide? What did he come to provide? Peace. Peace. B, so the first A, right, the only A, I guess, but the ABCs, the A is, it is to be joy-filled. B, it's corporate. Our worship is to be corporate. That's verse 13 and 20. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Again, our, our worship is to emulate heaven. And we see God's gathered creatures, the angels, worshiping God for his provision of the Savior King. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising him. And then verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. We are to praise the Lord with others, namely the church. Amen? That's the B. And then C, it's evangelistic. Our worship is to be evangelistic. That's verses 17 and 20. And when they saw it, they made known. When they saw it, they did what? They made it known. If you've seen Christ in the Word, His beauty, His goodness, His love, His mercy and grace, what should you do, church? You make it known. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And then verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The content of our praise is to be shared with others. Jesus is Savior, King, and Lord. Come to bring peace. 
That's what we sing about, and that's what we should share with others. That's why we praise him, and that is the good news that we're called to share with others. Let me ask some questions, therefore. Just some questions from the ABCs of worship that you just learned. Our worship is to be joy-filled, it's to be corporate, it's to be evangelistic. Number one, is your worship joyful? Is it centered on King Jesus and his saving work? If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you know joy. Amen? If you know Jesus, you know joy. And this should be seen in your worship. Two, is it corporate? Is your worship corporate? Meaning, are you prioritizing gathering regularly with the church to praise the King? And number three, is it evangelistic? Are you seeking opportunities to share the content of your praise with others? You know, we we sing of Jesus, don't we? When we gather, we sing about him this morning. We sing of Jesus, the Savior King and Lord, who came to bring peace between a holy God and sinners. How are you making others aware of this good news? Is Sunday, let me ask this question, and I hope it's convicting for all of us. Is Sunday the only day when you speak of Jesus? Is Sunday the only day when Jesus is heard on your lips? What about the other six days of the week? You know, I I recently, this was uh, two Tuesdays ago, I was at our Senior Saints luncheon, and I had a great conversation with a, a newer family about our favorite places to eat. I can talk about Jesus all day, but I also like to talk about hunting and food. And I love when those two are related, meaning what I eat, I've, I've killed. Anyways, um, but we were talking about restaurants. We were talking about places that we enjoy eating, and it was so much fun. I mean, we're laughing together. There's joy. We're talking about different food places that we've experienced. But that was over food. I mean, come on, food. There's nothing more wonderful, more satisfying, and more glorious than Jesus Christ. If you've witnessed him, again, we're talking about our experiences with food. And I love food. I'm thankful for it. It's a gift from God. I enjoy good food. Amen? You're thinking about it right now. I know you are. Stop, please. But you are. But when you've had a good food experience, what do you do? Oh, boy, we tried that new restaurant downtown. You should try it out as well. It was great. It was fairly economical. And, man, they were quick, good service. Great steak, check it out. I mean, don't we do that? If we've had a good food experience, we like to share it with others. If you've witnessed Christ in the Word, then commit to sharing Him with others. You know, why did the shepherds respond the way they did? Again, God reveals His glory, and the shepherds, they leave glorifying God. Why? Why did they respond that way? Verses 16 and 17. And they went with haste. I love that word, haste. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Why did they respond the way they did? You ready? Were you listening? They saw the king. They saw the king. They beheld the savior of the world. And again, the appropriate response was what? Is worship. Have you witnessed the king in the word of God? Have you seen him? 
Have you seen him? Have you witnessed the king, King Jesus, in the word of God? Have you beheld Jesus in the scriptures? Have you trusted in him? And are you now enjoying peace with God through him? If so, your life should be marked by continual worship to God. The appropriate response to witnessing Jesus in the word of God is worship. And this worship is to be joy-filled, corporate, and evangelistic. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can go to the first book, the first chapter, and the first verses of your Bible, and we see so clearly why we were made. We were made to worship you. But then if we continue reading, we see that because of Adam and Eve and their sin, and now our sin, that we have rejected that wonderful privilege invocation, that instead of worshiping the one true God, we worship self and the world. But the good news is that, Jesus, you came to restore our worship. You came to make us worshipers again of the one true God. You came to take away sin. You came to destroy the works of the devil. You came to make peace between a holy God and sinful people so that our vocation, our job, our privilege could be restored, and that is to worship you. Father, I thank you for what we've learned this morning in your word, that Jesus is Savior, he's Christ, the King, and he's Lord. Come to save peoples from around the world. Come to rescue a multi-ethnic people for himself people that might enjoy peace with God. And I pray that for those of us who have benefited from that good news, we've internalized it, we've received it, we rejoice in it, that we would spread it. Father, I know that over the holidays, especially Christmas and Thanksgiving, we gather around family and friends that we haven't seen in a while, many of whom are not believers, give us boldness to tell them the good news. May our praise be evangelistic. May we share with them what we sing about every week. Give us the boldness and the strength and the grace and the wisdom to do that well. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take what we've heard this morning and apply it deep into our hearts. And through this time and because of our time in your word, Father, make us more like your son. May our worship, may our lives resemble heaven. And may we yearn for heaven's return, for the King of heaven to come down and gather his people in glory. But until then, Father, may we be found faithful. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.